0: Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. So
1: you yeah, had the premier yesterday talking about the possibility of uh, unemployment in Alberta reaching 25%, which is pretty staggering. The prime minister, as you heard, uh, cautioning that tomorrow's jobless numbers are not going to be pretty. Uh, At the same time, uh, the feds have announced uh, they're going to loosen the rules around the wage subsidy program. And I I think that will help to some extent. I mean, today Air Canada announced that they're going to rehire about 16,000 people that have been laid off uh, because they now qualify for the wage subsidy. WestJet says they're still studying it. So, you know, certainly these programs exist to try to mitigate uh, the impact of all of this, but there's probably no avoiding a, a big spike in unemployment. Joining us uh, to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program Trevor Toon, Associate Professor, Economics, University of Calgary, Research Fellow at the School of Public Policy at the U of C. Trevor, appreciate you making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Uh, I don't know if we've really ever seen 25% unemployment anywhere in, in Canada. It's, uh, it's a pretty stark number. How, how realistic is that in your view?
2: Well, you'd have to look back to the Great Depression to find a period where we had unemployment reach those levels. That would have been in 1933. So it's very unusual, but I don't think we should view it as unexpected. Now, we may not see that in the numbers tomorrow uh, because the numbers that we're going to get tomorrow are for the middle of March, and it was right when things were starting to turn south pretty rapidly. So we might not have a full picture of the extent of unemployment until um, the beginning of May.
1: But in terms of where things might get to, that, that those kind of numbers are probably pretty realistic, aren't they?
2: Yeah, I mean, think about what sectors are being disrupted right now. So retail, accommodation, food services, just those areas alone, which right now are largely shut in, and in in many areas all over the country. In Alberta, there's about 400,000 people that work in just those sectors. And then then add to that, you think about disruptions in transportation, in recreation, in culture. Uh, and in oil and gas, given the very low oil price that we have both now and for the kind of the medium term going forward. So I think a 25% unemployment rate is is kind of where we should expect at the moment the numbers to be. Now, there's a lot of uncertainty there. Where it actually falls out is going to be uh, something to take a look at because the federal government, through the wage subsidy program, is providing very large transfers to businesses to keep people on the payroll. So that might go some way to preventing what could be this kind of really high unemployment rate, but I think it's entirely possible.
1: Yeah, I think there's probably only so much we can do to mitigate it. And, and just to mm-hmm. be clear then, so somebody who is basically not working but is, is remaining on the payroll because of the wage subsidy, mm-hmm. that, that would still count as an employed person, right?
2: That's right. So in the data, I think we're going to have a lot of people coming through it very carefully. It's perhaps the most anticipated jobs report ever. And what we should be looking for is not just the unemployment rate. We should be looking also at hours worked. So you may have a number of people that respond to the labor force survey from StatsCan saying that they are employed, but they didn't actually work any hours. And their usual hours might be full-time, but they've just kind of been furloughed. And so that's a sign mm-hmm. of reduced labour market activity, even though they're not technically unemployed.
1: Or perhaps people who've been quarantined as well. I mean, that's that's had an impact, too, on people's earnings.
2: Yeah, a- absolutely. And so there are special programs from the provincial government and federally uh, to support uh, those individuals. And there's also questions in the Labour Force Survey that'll give us some Uh, snapshots there in terms of why you're absent from work. Are you taking care of a dependent, a kid or a loved one, maybe a parent, uh, or are you sick yourself? Uh, So there might be a lot of information in that labor force survey around exactly how many people were affected in many different ways. You know,
1: and the challenge is in responding to this, and this is so different from from previous periods of high unemployment, where mm-hmm. governments would be looking at ways of stimulating the economy. For now, we're we're trying to keep people at home, and it, it's obviously it's it's such a different kind of challenge, isn't it?
2: Yeah, exactly. And we should look at it very differently as well. This high unemployment rate, or the big drop in employment that we're likely to see, is a choice that we're making. As uh, a public health measure, and it is done in order to prevent um, what could be a catastrophic, you know, spread of the disease and, and high mortality rates in the future, which would bring with it significant economic costs. So this is a costly health measure, but if we can bridge people through it, uh, so that when we get through to the other side after the peak of the the viral spread passes, then there will ideally be a very rapid ramp up in the sectors that have seen contraction over these few months. And yeah. so it, unlike the Great Depression, it's a, it's a choice that we're making. And it's, I, I think, an optimal choice given the nature of the health crisis that we're facing.
1: And that response has basically been, well, twofold, almost threefold. I mean, there's the wage subsidy coupled with the new emergency mm-hmm. response benefit. We've got EI on top of that to try mm-hmm. to cover as many bases as possible. I mean, some yeah. people may still fall through the cracks, but I mean, and under these circumstances, I guess it's unrealistic to expect a, you know, a perfect system to be quickly oh,
2: implemented. Absolutely. And, and in fairness to the government, they're also being quite flexible. They're also yeah. changing policy on the fly. We've seen reforms and easing the requirements for the wage subsidy program. And I think governments are moving remarkably quickly. Just looking at how many applications they are processing is it's quite incredible. We're talking about millions of potential applications for this emergency benefit. Um, EI claims have been at unprecedented levels. So it's really, I think, impressive how quickly both the federal and provincial governments have moved and over time you know as um governments can can take take a breath and i think we'll see much more targeted measures too at specific sectors airlines oil and gas potentially as well
1: Mm -hmm. right and i suppose i mean you know there's there's probably a finite amount of time that we can continue to do this. And and ideally, I think we're looking at this as being sort of a few months kind of a bridge. And the premier spoke last night about, you know, maybe once May is done, that we'll be in a position where we can sort of slowly start to return to normal. I mean, it's... Are these programs predicated on on a certain period of time when we look at what the rest of the year might hold? I mean, it's it's tough to to know exactly, I guess when things are going to get back to normal, but but how do we start to measure that?
2: Yeah, so the these measures are quite large and expensive. I mean, what the federal government has announced for the next four months, I believe, is the the targeted wage subsidy program is, this plus the emergency benefits are over hundred billion dollars, and that's not counting the deferral programs right. uh, that they've that they've also rolled out, or the loan guarantees and other kind of credit provisions that they've made available. So that's that's a lot, no no question, but it's manageable given the federal fiscal situation. Um, but you know, each month just adds to that cost. So I think, think programs like these are appropriate for these short-term bridges over the span of months and that's why it'll be kind of important to see how April and May proceed and then and then if we start to ease ease up on the social distancing restrictions as we get to the other side of this health crisis then governments you'll see I think quickly start to wind up these emergency support programs.
1: Right. I mean, the Premier spoke last night about the possibility of a $20 billion deficit. That's another yeah. eye-popping kind of figure. I mean, you just hinted yeah. at what the, the federal deficit might be looking at, uh, which is necessary under the circumstances. But I think as we move forward, there's going to be that, that kind of delicate balance between yeah. we've got to get the economy back on track, and we've also now got, got to worry about this, this accumulating debt side of it.
2: Mm-hmm. So Alberta, that $20 billion is is right where... Now i've been expecting i've been saying 15 to 20 billion um it's kind of a good back of the envelope estimate here because alberta's going through basically a triple whammy not only is revenue going to be falling because incomes uh, are lower and so that affects personal income taxes and corporate profits are lower and so on and spending being higher in health but low oil prices translates directly into lower resource revenues and then the stock market uh, we earn significant dollars from investment income, and that's going to almost surely drop to uh, zero or potentially negative, given where the stock market has been recently. And so all that translates into a large Alberta deficit. But Alberta's not alone there. Every province is going to be seeing strain, and I think it's um, it's a good expectation for the federal government to be stepping in and providing very... Um, large but kind of ad hoc transfers to provinces to help cushion the blow because some are in a particularly severe situation like newfoundland now basically shut out mm-hmm. of credit markets
1: well it's a good argument for confederation and why isn't it no, and having a, a strong central government with that kind of capacity and flexibility
2: Exactly. And this is the type of situation where the federal government is best able to absorb that shock. So they're able to borrow at rates that are much lower than provincial governments can. So there's a very strong economic case to have a lot of the costs shifted federally in the same way that we do for natural disasters. You know, when hurricanes strike, uh, if an earthquake were to happen, these these costs are under a current pre-existing program transferred to the federal government. But that disaster program that exists now does not cover pandemic events like this. And so I think you'll see the federal government um, probably change things in that program, extend it so that they pick up some of the the health costs, and then also just take on effectively some provincial debt.
1: All right, Trevor, we'll leave it there. Again, always appreciate the insight. Thanks for making some time for us here. Okay, thank you. Anytime. All right, all the best. Uh, Trevor Toom. Uh, associate Professor, Economics, University of Calgary, Research Fellow at the School of Public Policy. So his thoughts on you know, what we're looking at in, in the short term and what are going to be some historic jobless numbers. Uh, the unemployment numbers we're expecting tomorrow probably won't tell the full story uh, of what's going on in the country, but it's easy enough to look elsewhere and get a sense of that in terms of uh, EI applications, in terms of the number of people applying for this uh, emergency response benefit. I mean, you just take those two categories alone. That's a lot of Canadians. On top of that, uh, you know, the fact that this uh, wage subsidy program has been implemented, the fact that the federal government is making it easier for businesses to, to qualify for that. So as as big as the unemployment numbers are and are going to be, you know, you think about what they might otherwise be absent uh, this kind of a wage subsidy program, it's, it's quite staggering to think about. So the hope is, of course, that this is relatively short-lived, that what we're doing right now is a bridge to get through these weeks, these months, and come out of it stronger on the other side. And, and that goes back to what the Premier talked about last night, and what we're expecting in terms of a peak here in Alberta, what kind of a plan we have in place, we're getting back to normal. And I think that's what we got to start thinking about in terms of what we need to do right now to do our part collectively in in paving the way for that scenario and what we expect that to look like. So it's not going to be an immediate bounce back uh, to to pre-pandemic sort of levels, especially given what's happening with oil prices. But we'll start to see that recovery, I think, fairly quickly once we get through this part. Look, obviously, there's been a lot of talk about how best to get financial assistance to Canadians, whether some kind of a universal benefit makes sense, how doable that is, you know, the merits of what the federal government is doing through the emergency response benefit, etc. But I mean, clearly, this all speaks to a recognition of the fact that, that Canadians are looking for uh, some financial assistance or at least some increased financial flexibility to try to get through what we hope will be, a few weeks or even a few months at most of, you know, this kind of economic shutdown. And we can start to get relatively back to normal at some point. So are there other ways we could help Canadians bridge that gap? One of the issues that's been proposed has been around the, uh, the question of RRSPs, right? The idea is you put money into your RRSP, uh, and then that's, that's available for you to to draw upon once you reach retirement. And so it's the kind of thing that that's, we take a, a kind of firm view on, that you're supposed to leave that alone. And if you try to take money out of your RSPs, there's obviously going to be penalties involved. We have some exceptions now when it comes to first-time homebuyers, et cetera. Is this the kind of situation where it would make sense to ease up those rules, to give Canadians some financial flexibility by allowing them to tap into their RRSPs as we try to get through this crisis? our next guest uh, thinks it does make sense. In fact, co-authored a piece today. Uh, you can read it at FinancialPost.com. Uh, joining us on the line is uh, Alexander Loren, is uh, Director of Research at the C.D. Howe Institute, a focus on fiscal and tax policy, also retirement, saving, and income. Alexander, thank you so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program.
3: Well, my pleasure. Good afternoon. All right. Well, let's talk about why,
1: in your view, then, uh, this, this is something that the federal government needs to take a look at
3: well you you started a the conversation around flexibility and that's exactly uh, what that would do there's there you know there's financial assistance now available uh the emergency uh, benefit et cetera the wage subsidy, uh but there's gaps and it's inevitable there're always going to be gaps and 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 this time gaps seems to be around the self employed individuals uh we've heard also um uh, Talks about the seniors uh, not really having anything. I mean, seniors could be uh, you know as young as six, sixty years old. I'm not you know. There's no age to that. Um, and 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 so there's also people that the financial assistance that the government is offering is great, but it, it's not enough. They have they have immediate cash flow needs. Like you, you can start thinking about a variety of situations where people need cash flows and um, and 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 government have a ready could have a ready so it's not a solution it's not a it's not a, a magic bullet uh, you know All it's right. not a cure-all but it's an help and it would be to uh, to allow uh, tax-free uh, withdrawals from rsps uh, like the home buyers plan like the lifelong learning plan they both do that uh, money withdrawal uh, have to be recontributed in the future uh, over a maximum number of years, ten to fifteen, depending on the plan. Uh, so there's no loss of tax effort, retirement savings. Room for uh, the participants. Uh, these things can be done pretty quickly because really the tax withholdings are um, are done by the financial institutions. So you know it's it's uh, I, this is something uh, and they're already doing it for uh, for two existing plans. So it, it's something that. They know and they can do pretty quickly, um, so that that's a big advantage. Doesn't cost much for the government because, really, when you think about it, it's the taxes are only deferred in the future. They're going to be paid. Taxes are going right. to be paid no matter what. They're deferred in the future, but they're going to be paid. Inter- interest rates are very low right now because interest rates are so low. The cost of the government will be negligible for such a thing. Um, so that that that's attractive when you compare a, neg- a negligible cost to uh, a one of the billion costs of um, of the two other programs, right? So Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's an important point, then, that maybe if Canadians are having to rely less on, on some of these federal benefits, that actually gives the federal government a b- bit of breathing room uh, by allowing this. So... Um, in, in terms then of of how this would work, as you say, very similar to the home buyers program. So the idea would be to allow Canadians to withdraw a certain amount, whatever that is, and then that is money that would be put back into the RRSP over a period of whatever it is, say say ten years,
3: right? Yeah, exactly. So so so, so it, it just provides more cash flow and and also an incentive uh, for people to use their RSPs. like for for example like if if someone uh, withdraw $10,000 uh and and taxes that year uh, uh would be uh, about 30% of that well that that person would have $3,000 more uh, cash flow uh, to spend so it's i mean it's it's to spend when they need it, right? Because they, they do that because they need it. So it's 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 just a it's a little help, but it's it, it could be significant for um for, for for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, it could be. And as you say, the, the government really isn't losing any money on this.
3: That that's 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 what we find attractive. Uh, they're not on a prison value basis. Obviously, they are lose. They would be losing um, a, a bit of money now if if there are risks the withdrawals would have happened anyway right if it's not if the people are not incentivized to withdraw but they would have withdrawn anyway then obviously they are they are kind of losing some money because they' they're not collecting the taxes that it would have collected now but it was they will still be collecting the taxes in the future though like so um, it, it's it's just the time value of money that's the cost here, the time value of money is very low right now with interest rates being so low. So that's the, the, it, this is important to mention that people are just borrowing their own money, so that costs nothing to the government. What costs something to the government in these plans, whether it's the own virus plan or the lifelong learning plans or that new plan that we're new plan are proposing, it's it, it's the tax Um, uh, You know, like you're collecting the taxes, but later,
1: right. Uh, how would it affect the, the contribution side?
3: Um, it, 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 when you're recontributing uh, to, uh, to your RSPs uh, in, in the future, uh, suppose you're at, at year, year two and you're, 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 you have 10 years to recontribute and you took $10,000 out, uh, so you have to recontribute $1,000 that year, you're not getting any tax deduction for that $1,000. Because you're recontributing and you already got a tax deduction when you originally contributed to RSP before taking that special withdrawal that was tax free. So you're not getting, when you're recontributing, you're not getting a tax deduction. And obviously, um, uh, taxes are going to be paid uh, eventually, uh, you know, probably at retirement when, when you get the money out, when you take the money out of your RRSP in, in right. future years. Right. So, I mean, but,
1: yeah. So, if, if someone's withdrawing from their RSP this year, when we get into the next year, the year after, and they're making a contribution, part of that would count yeah. as the repayment of the withdrawal, and, and the rest would still count as as a new contribution then.
3: Exactly. That yeah. That that's how these plans work. Uh, whether it's own buyers plan or life lifelong learning plan, they they both work this way. Yeah, it, it, it's pretty simple actually. It, so they, they, I think that that's what's pretty attractive. It's it's simple, so it can be done pretty quickly. And even if something would 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 like to use this to to have more liquidity now to make a big purchase well, that's great this is one when, when we need people to yeah. buy cars the economy's down like what what's wrong with
1: this yeah yeah I, I mean that's 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 it too I mean whether it's to just to get through these few months or even to buy something like a vehicle like there, there's a benefit to all of that in terms of you know helping people make ends meet or, or stimulating the economy right I mean it, it can work on both sides yeah
3: yeah exactly and 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 oh, even if people would End up not really using this uh, because there's also these advantages, right? There, they are disadvantages. Like if, if someone has um, big losses in, in his or her RSBs and start start selling um, with a thirty percent loss, I mean, it's it, it's definitely not optimal, right? Like you, you, you can see that there's financial literacy issues with with with, the, with these kind of incentives, right? But not everyone has invested. Are of all their RSP money and 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 equity that that have lost thirty percent, so people can also like choose which investment to sell, and also some people will be selling RSPs anyway, right? Um, no matter what, because they will need uh, the, the, the liquidity. Uh, so so that's that's one disadvantage. Another disadvantage could be like this is a year where probably your tax uh, burden will be a bit lower. So. I mean, you're not getting as much value of deferring taxes on on on, the, on these uh, special withdrawals, but it's better than nothing. But you know, yeah. like uh, there could be some disadvantages that way. Like people would need to think a little bit about before, uh, you know, making use of this. Like, do you, do I really need it? And you know, uh, mm-hmm. am I am I is this something that is that is good or bad, right, in the long term? But I mean, people people can take their, 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 these kind of decisions, uh, especially people that that have um, that have RSPs usually. Yeah.
1: So for the home buyer's pr- plan, it's thirty five thousand, up to thirty five thousand uh, to be repaid over fifteen years. The uh, lifelong learning plan is ten thousand maximum over ten years. Do you see this kind of a response being closer to the the lifelong learning plan in terms of a maximum amount?
3: Yeah, 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 usually uh with with these kind of things uh even if they're only tax deferral, governments are very very um timid. Uh mm-hmm. they, they they never I for for a reason I don't know governments don't like tax deferrals that much, so I I'm 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 thinking that a 10,000 dollar they met with a 10 year um uh, at, at, at over 10 years to reimburse uh is, is, is something that, if, if this is ever adopted, uh, it, would resemble, um, it would resemble that. Um, up to 20000 maybe, but not more.
1: Yeah. Well, we'll see. Uh, I think certainly the government's open to ideas these days, and this is one worth looking at. Uh, much more at cdhow.org. You've also got the pieces we mentioned in the Financial Post today. Alexander, thank you so much for making some time for us here. Appreciate it.
3: Thank you so much.
1: All the best. Alexander Loran, Director of Research at the C.D. Howe Institute. So, yeah, I think there's a strong case to be made for it, given these uh, extraordinary circumstances we're we're under here and, and the financial pressure that a lot of Canadians are under as a way of giving them a little bit of extra flexibility and maybe even potentially, as he says, alleviating some of the demand on some of these other federal programs. The premier spoke last night about the economic challenges Alberta is facing. And already, look, before this whole pandemic, Alberta was facing some considerable economic challenges. Uh, this, This is obviously a massive one now. On top of that, we still have some of the other issues we were dealing with before. Uh, and in particular, when it comes to oil prices, a situation being exacerbated, uh, not just by you know the, the dramatic drop in demand, but obviously the additional supply that's being pushed onto the market as a result of this price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia. So the challenges Alberta is facing right now are, are plentiful, obviously. The premier spoke last night about ways that we're going to try to mitigate that uh, as part of the government's recovery plan. Once we get through this initial public health response, Part of that strategy, obviously, we already have the announcement regarding the uh, Keystone XL pipeline, the arrangement with TC Energy, uh, and the ability now at least to move ahead with building that, that crucial pipeline. So how do we build off of that uh, when it comes to the oil and gas sector, both in terms of the short term and helping the sector get through these challenges and looking long term, uh, what we need in terms of some recovery? Well, joining us uh, to talk more about uh, all of that, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Tim McMillan, who is president and CEO of the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, and they put out a piece today looking at uh, some of the recommendations for what we need to get to economic recovery. Tim, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program.
0: Good afternoon.
1: Uh, So some interesting ideas here in, in terms of what kind of a direction we need to pursue what we've seen already, I mean, obviously, we, we did get the announcement on Keystone XL. That was big. We're, we're waiting for some kind of announcement from the federal government, although they did clarify today that, that oil and gas companies are eligible for this wage subsidy. So but what have you made of the response thus far?
0: You know, I, we've really categorized what we think is important for the federal government into three buckets. Um, the first, I want to give the federal government credit uh, on essential services. They recognized early on that ensuring home heating, uh, that the entire energy system that people rely on, was an essential service, and uh, they've moved quickly to to ensure that that's not just uh, put forward and part of their package, but uh, also the regulatory um, flexibilities that need to go with that. Um, the next two pieces are. Are of critical importance, and I think we're asking the federal government to urgently look into some liquidity options, uh, some consistent with what they did in '08 for the manufacturing sector, um, and the other is some regulatory flexibility. That there's certain pieces of of regulations that we need some flexibility around to enable us to operate in the health crisis and others that are about uh, costs at a time where this should be tools down. Uh, we're asking for a do-no-harm approach to new and incremental regulatory uh, changes.
1: All right, well, let's start with the liquidity side, and the government, has, and certainly the Bank of Canada as well, there've been some announcements uh, regarding access to credit, but um, what, what more do we need to see, or are you hoping to see on that front?
0: So the federal government has announced some, uh, some um, economy-wide uh, items and they've also identified that they they recognize there needs to be an oil and gas sector specific and uh, the sector specific announcement uh, we're waiting with bated breath the finance minister a couple of weeks ago said it was within hours or days and uh, I want to recognize the federal government has been um, good at reaching out uh, they're engaging with us regularly and uh, they're trying to get a package that uh, that they think will be effective to sustain this industry so that it can be a major player in pulling Canada out of a recession in the months ahead.
1: Yeah, and one aspect in particular, I mean, there's, there's been a lot of talk about this uh, as, as kind of a short-term uh, job creation strategy, some support for uh, reclamation of inactive and in, in orphan wells. Is that something that that you'd like to see?
0: That's right. Um that has a couple of benefits that we think are important. The first is that with the crash in global energy prices, Canadian companies have been trying to maintain their own balance sheets. They've cut between 6 and $8 billion worth of capital spending this year. And one of the effects of that is that uh, the service sector that does the work in this province, the people that um, are on service rigs and drilling rigs and doing all sorts of other jobs, Will will not have six and a half to eight billion dollars worth of work. Um, so by putting a program in place for inactive and orphan wells, we can get uh, some of our environmental liabilities cleaned up off balance sheets, um, off of uh, off of the properties across the province. At the same time, we can keep that service sector um, engaged and capable of responding when ultimately the prices turn around. Uh,
1: so, on the regulation side, you, you mentioned first of all the uh, the idea of kind of a do no harm approach here. Uh, when it comes to at least in, in the short term, uh, the regulatory environments. What, what specifically would would that represent? What, what What are you hoping to see?
0: You know, there's there's uh, several things that uh, we're highlighting for the federal government, uh, and uh, you know, one is on the methane regs that uh, the provinces are best positioned to administer the federal targets. But the federal government hasn't given equivalency to the province on their plans. So, you know, we're quibbling about whether there should be inspections twice a year or three times a year. Let's just let's just get over it. Let's make it as uh, as efficient as possible and move on. Um, Another would be the clean fuel standards regulation. This is a substantial cost, not just for oil and gas but for the economy as a whole, and the, the federal government is looking to gazette that or move it into the official process later on this year. Um, we don't have time to be consulting on something of this magnitude, nor do I think any other industries. So let's just put that to the side until uh, the crisis is over and we can come back together and decide, is this still appropriate?
1: And when it comes to, um, you know, the idea of essential services and and keeping the oil and gas industry functioning as as much as we can right now, I mean, first of all, as you say, it means recognizing that they are an essential service. But what about on on the safety side to ensure that people who are still doing that crucial work are protected? How how do we balance that?
0: And I think uh, with a a very sensitive eye that uh, anything that is safety related or environmental protections... Um, If we can find an elegant solution that achieves that outcome, we should do it. Uh, But those can't be sacrificed. But there's also regulations that actually put us in harm's way. That uh, if we can uh, minimize the number of people on a work site at this point in time and maybe push uh, some of those larger um, manpower intensive inspections uh, out for a month or two when the peak has passed, that's the kind of stuff that some flexibility would be very helpful on.
1: Yeah, and, and that's that's going to help us, I, I think, get through this period. I mean, in terms of looking down the road and, you know, with, what the Premier said last night about trying to ensure that, you know, we're, we're focused on supporting not just Canadian energy, almost looking at it in, in a North American sense and, and the pressures we're facing from some, some certain countries in particular, but what's happening globally. What's your sense on maybe how we need to at least start thinking about how to address that?
0: You know, we've long advocated that um, we've, we think it's not good policy or a good practice for half of canada to import half of their crude oil and natural gas and um, we see billions of dollars worth of oil coming into north america a year from saudi arabia from uh, nigeria from russia and when two of those countries have used a global health crisis to try and go after market share, I think it just hammers home the point that those aren't the types of countries we should be doing business with. And it will take us building some infrastructure in Canada to enable us to connect with our, um, our people in Ontario, Quebec, and Atlantic Canada. But uh, that's the, this is a type of, of issue that I think demands some reflection.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, much more at cap.ca, C-A-P-P dot C-A. Tim, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate this. Thank you. All right. Take care. Uh, that is Tim McMillan, President CEO of the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. So their thoughts on, on kind of what they'd like to see from the government now to help the industry uh, get through these, these next few weeks and few months. I want to focus right now on some of the questions around, you know, keeping liquor stores and cannabis stores open, which the province has sensibly decided will be the case. But I, I think it makes sense to to treat them equitably, and on that front, we're not quite maybe where we need to be. It was interesting uh, in Ontario; they actually made the decision that liquor stores would be considered essential businesses and stay open, cannabis stores would be considered non-essential, and we're going to close for two weeks. The Ontario government's had a rethink. They've decided that uh, cannabis stores will be able to, to remain open for delivery and curbside pickup. And here in Alberta, where liquor stores have the flexibility to, to offer delivery, maybe it makes sense that the cannabis stores ought to as well. Joining us for some thoughts on all of that, I'd uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Nathan Meissen. He is chair of the Alberta Cannabis Council. He's co-chair of the National Cannabis Task Force with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce and VP of Government Relations and Stakeholders with Fire and Flower. Nathan, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program.
4: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Uh, First of all, your thoughts on on this reversal in in Ontario. What what did you make of that?
4: Well, I think it made a lot of sense. Um, I I think one of the things that needs to be taken in consideration for cannabis is, you know, we're very young into the legalization of the Canadian cannabis sector. And, you know, we're one of the only sectors that is displacing um, a fairly entrenched illegal market. Um, And, you know, when we go away, the legal cannabis sector goes away, it is immediately filled by the people that had a 80-year head start on us. Um, and, you know, when that announcement happened on Friday of, of last week, you immediately saw a legal um, enterprise start saying, hey, we do delivery. In fact, they were so bold to release press releases on the Canadian press wire. So I think the government quickly realized that, you know, this sector is... Um, different in some regards and the fact that it does have a uh, competitor that's sitting on the sideline waiting to take any um, light, uh, any, any sliver of light that it can to, to fill that gap. Um, and that it's a sector that, um, you know, needs to be understood that, you know, um, needs to be treated fair and equally. Um, you know, that's our, it has been our message across the country. Uh, a great example of that was BDC, um, Canada sector of almost every sector in Canada was excluded for, uh, Business Development Bank of Canada. And, and our mantra has been, you legalized us, treat us the same as everybody else. And I think, um the government heard that loud and clear in Ontario and, and we're very excited to be opening tomorrow.
1: Yeah, so that that was an encouraging clarification, I think, from from the BDC. Let's talk about the situation here in Alberta. Um, that that AGLC is taking the approach that, like liquor stores, cannabis stores uh, w- will stay open for now. That it certainly it seems that steps can be taken to ensure that that it's it's safe to do so. Um, so, what, what, first of all, just in terms of you know how this has been handled up until this point, the approach from from AGLC, and and also how retailers are adjusting to this new reality.
4: Well, so I think. You know, Alberta needs to be commended in the fact that, you know, we have the most um, vibrant retail market in Canada. Um, you know, we have over 400 stores, which still at this time is more stores than the rest of the country combined. It's um, amazing the the conversation that happened in Ontario, but it needs to be taken into consideration that they only have 52 stores still for 14 million people. And we have over 400 for uh, 4.2 million. So, you know uh, that that is something that Alberta has really done well, and that's the way that you really displace the illicit market. Um, but there's things that Alberta has led, and then there's things that Alberta hasn't uh, has fallen behind on. One of the significant um, things on that is the ability to actually take online payments. Um, at this current time, Alberta does not have a mechanism where cannabis retailers have the ability to take somebody's payment online through our websites, and then have people pick up uh that product in a in a click and collect and measure that most of the other provinces do and that's the first step of something that should be immediate um that will allow us to get closer to uh, curbside delivery and delivery but also ensure that uh, we're minimizing interaction between our customers and our staff um, and of course as we know in a in a social environment uh, that we live in with social distancing and, and isolation we want to make sure that we keep those interactions um, as tight as possible and that's the first step of something that we need and and we have been pressing AGLC very hard and we hope to hear something very soon um, but they're listening and then make the necessary amendment to get us that first step um, and then start having a very significant conversation which we're already pushing now about curbside and delivery.
1: Yeah because right now as you say the curbside's not an option and, and delivery's not an option is it?
4: We have to have that first step that the rest of the country has and um, you know, we have, like, a great example is we're, you know, we're very lucky and the fact that we are in multiple jurisdictions. Um, you know, we're in four provinces and one territory across Canada, and we get to see what works and doesn't work. And of those um, five jurisdictions, um, Alberta is the only one that doesn't have an online payment system uh, for orders. And that's a first step to make sure we can continue to keep people who uh, want to have access to a legal product, um like alcohol without interactions. And I think your point is, is very true is, you know, there is a direct comparison for us in liquor. So whatever liquor gets, we should have fair and equal treatment to the same thing. We're a legal product. We're uh, under the name, same jurisdiction under the AGLC and under the Minister of Finance. And all we're asking for is the same thing to continue to make sure that we ensure the public safety of our staff, our customers, and to keep the illegal make market at bay.
1: So it's simply a case then of AGLC sort of giving the go-ahead. Are are retailers positioned to be able to set that up relatively quickly?
4: Yeah, I think there's lots of individuals who, um, uh, you know, there's lots of different companies that are out there that assist through online payments. So that would be something that can happen very quickly because it happens in other jurisdictions. And, of course, that is going to require uh, regulatory reporting. And, and we understand that is a requirement that we have. And, you know, there is subject matter expertise in other jurisdictions that could come here. So it's retailers having that capability, quickly moving to have those conversations, and then uh, turning them on. Um, we at the Alberta Cannabis Council actually had a meeting today where we're actually be offering uh, webinars next week to retailers and licensed producers. About the the companies that are out there that can help you with um, online customer interfaces as well as online payments to make sure that um, you know those 400 plus retailers are ready uh, when AGLC turns on that switch.
1: I mean, it's interesting because in Alberta, you know, we, we have that, that, that vibrant retail sector. When it comes to online, the government has the monopoly on that through the albertacannabis.org website. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know if it's a conflict necessarily, but do you get the sense that maybe the, there's a reluctance to allow retailers to deliver because it might uh, undercut the, the Alberta Cannabis website?
4: I think one of the unique things about cannabis is, even though the fact that stats canada um prior to legalization identified that 22 to 26 percent of canadians had utilized cannabis like it was fairly ubiquitous in society prior to legalization when you look at legalization now the fastest growing population of cannabis consumers is seniors um now that we've had edibles and drinks you've seen women start to come into the market as well but the stereotypes remain and i think that has been the challenge um for the cannabis sector is that, you know, some of those tropes around its reefer madness um, uh, remain, and and there's an unnecessary uh, aversion to risk. And by letting those um, people have access to online, um, you know, maybe that's something that we don't have control of. The really unfortunate thing is the vibrancy of the illegal market when it comes to online is is incredible, right? Um, There is delivery services in every city. If you ever want to see something interesting, <laughs> pull up Weed Maps and have a look at really? the fact that you could pull up a, a, um, the app right now and have something delivered to your station, to your studio right now. That's happening at, as we speak. So, you know, we have to keep in consideration that we have to make good decisions to allow the legal sector to sell safe and regulated tested products. Um, that doesn't have mold, pesticides, and herbicides, um, and have the ability to displace the illicit market and fill a need that is obviously being filled in society and, at the same time, push past some of those stereotypes and tropes that, unfortunately, still wrap around us as a sector.
1: Yeah, and I hope we'll see that. And as you say, I mean, AGLC, I mean, there's, they've shown a willingness to be flexible, I think, through this situation, so, mm-hmm. I don't know, are you fairly optimistic that, that we'll see some movement on these fronts?
4: I am. I think there's some... Very good leadership at the top from, you know, uh, Len Rhodes, the AGLC board chair, uh, Alain Massinov, uh the CEO of the AGLC, um, Dave Barry, who's our VP of Regulatory Services, to uh, Minister Tays um, uh, in finance, who, of course, oversees the entire department. I, I think, you know, we're living in a very different world. Um, now, the challenge for the cannabis sector is Western Canadian Select Oil is at, what, $3 today? Um, cannabis is, of course... Uh, A a difficult thing to talk about when the government has other priorities, but the difference for us, and this is why we keep uh, banging that drum, is people are selling non-tested illegal products that could have mold and pesticides right now in a time where we have a pandemic that affects people's lungs. And that's scary, and we don't want that to happen, and we want to keep the public safe and our staff safe, and we need the tools to do it like Online payments, curbside and delivery, like every other company has. Um, But to on a positive point, we were included as an essential service. And that's a pretty big moment for something again that we have to remember is only October 17th of 2018, right? Like that's we're not that old. Um, So the fact that we were included was a step in the right direction. And I think the government has been willing uh, to listen, Um, but we need to continue to make sure people hear public safety, and displace the illicit market. And that should be our mantra.
1: Absolutely. Much more at uh, albertacannabiscouncil.ca, also fireandflower.com. Nathan, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this.
4: Thank you for bringing the issue forward. It's really appreciated. And uh, we look forward to hopefully getting on the show when we can start offering online payment, curbside, and delivery in the next couple of weeks.
1: All right. We'll keep an eye on that. Nathan, all the best. Take care.
4: Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: All right. That's uh, Nathan Meissen, chair of the Alberta Cannabis Council, co-chair of the National Cannabis Task Force with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, also VP of Government and Stakeholder Relations with Fire and Flower. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.